0: only there's a tremendous drift away from the King James a huge movement away from it um, and there are a variety of reasons for that I can explain to you um, what what all is happening certainly the the internet and the rise of the internet um, has uh, elevated voices and a lot of people go there for instruction, and uh, you know, I don't. Um, I, I encourage you to read and study and listen to stuff and all of that. But just, I would also caution you. Uh, you know, there, God's plan is not for you to have an internet pastor or internet pastors, um, but that you would. I, I think that for any, if anything, what what has happened is a lot of King James team only guys are also. Um, almost hostile towards the internet and uh, they don't look at it and they don't want to look at it and they don't want to know what's going on and I understand that but then they're blindsided by the power of messages that are out there. So if anything for me it's motivated me to um, look at things more carefully, more closely and to teach you more thoroughly on things that I think we need, where we need to hold the line. And this is an issue where I believe we need to hold the line. And if I didn't, then I would teach you differently. Um, but uh, I think that uh, we need to be um, sure. We need Number one, uh, I, I, no matter what, I'm always committed to a church Bible. I think that a church needs to have a Bible, not ten different versions or five different versions. Represented in the congregation, we need to be committed to a Bible that we use for preaching and teaching. And I think that it's wise for us to have a consistent Bible, uh, not just in public but in private as well. I'm not, um, you know, dogmatic. I know that some of you will disagree with me, and that you know, as you know, uh, I'm going to tell you what I believe, what I believe I can defend from Scripture. I don't believe that, you know, when you're in Hobby Lobby, that you've got to avert your eyes, you know, from any placards or signs that might have another version on it. Um, because I don't believe that there's a, uh, a sin in looking at another version of the Bible. I, I don't see that as sinful. Um, but I think that we are wise to be consistent in the Bible that we use. And, uh, that, you know, I know that when I'm reading books and they're using another version of the Bible, um, I'm always, in my mind, I'm always thinking, what, what does my Bible say on that? I want to look at it and see, because I want to know what, I I want to know what's different, because I know it's not the same. Um, though, anyway, I'm not going to get into all of that right here now. I'm just going to say to you that, um, we, I'm laying out, I think, a, a solid case for why we ought to be King James only, and I'm trying to, right now not to get too far ahead of myself, but just to say that the, the issue, the real issue, the, the, the biblical issue that underlies the translation debate is over the preserved Word of God. Has God kept his word, and how has he kept his word? Do, can we be confident that we have the words of God, that the word of God is settled? Is it necessary for us, for instance, uh, and I've been bringing this up with you, but uh, the, the newest edition of the Nestle Allen uh, it will be Nestle Allen 29, that will be coming out in 2024 as I understand it. So coming out soon. And there's been a slow unveiling of the changes from the NA twenty-eight to the NA29. Now the Nestle Allen is the critical text, the modern-day critical text. And so they, you know, are putting pouring all the textual scholarship into updating. The Nestle Allen 28 into this 29th edition of it and slowly unveiling the changes and already, I believe in just three or four books of the New Testament alone, there are somewhere around five or 600 changes that they're making in this. And, And it's interesting because with each new edition, since the 24th edition, I believe each new edition of the Nestle Allen has moved closer to the Westcott and Hort 1881 uh, New Testament. Each time, they keep going back to that. Now, nobody thinks that Westcott and Hort's scholarship was the best, like cutting edge, but, but it's interesting how we revert back to that. over and over. And and so we're seeing that kind of thing happen, and my contention is that there is not, the objective of textual criticism is not to have a settled text of Scripture. I believe that there will always be tweaking, changing, new methods that are used and applied, and so on, and I object to that. I object to the idea that the Word of God is up for grabs, that the words of Scripture are negotiable or changeable, that, that we can go in and say, you know, these words that we've been using for this number of years are no longer do we consider to be the words of God. In this endless quest to find the original words, I think that we're losing sight. They are losing, not we. They are losing sight of what we're what, what we're handling here, which is the very words of God. And so, the contention of our position, our church, and other churches like ours is that the Texas Receptus is the settled word of God. That that is where the words of God are found, and that every uh, Version translation of the Bible should translate that word of God, that uh, Texas Receptus, should be translating that when it comes to the New Testament. Of course, the Old Testament, the Masoretic Hebrew. That's our contention. And that's really the baseline of why we are King James only. Uh, it is, there are three or four, there are a couple of modern translations that translate. From the TR. I'm not going to get into that either right now because there are a couple of issues that I have with that. I'll just give you the easiest, uh, the simplest, and the biggest for me reason uh, that we wouldn't embrace one of those. And that is because I believe, and I've taught you consistently, that the church is a pillar and ground of the truth. And so I would look for acceptance, widespread acceptance. Among God's churches now the King James when it was published in 1611 was not immediately embraced by churches in fact it took um, I would I I believe if I'm not mistaken I just read a book on this but I believe that it was between 20 and 50 years before churches uh, you know prior to that there was a division between the Geneva Bible which was the Bible of the pilgrims and the Puritans uh, and the Bishop's Bible, uh, which was more a um, uh, Anglican Church uh, edition uh, of the English Bible, and there was great conflict between the two. The objection, uh, and King James's objection to the King to the Geneva Bible, which, by the way, the Geneva Bible is the Bible that the Pilgrims brought when they came to the United States. They did not bring the King James Bible with him. The King James did not come to the United States, now for a while. And again, it was not widely accepted right away. So so I recognized that there would be a process in this. But the objection that the crown had to the Geneva Bible was not the Bible, it was not the translation, it was the footnotes and the explanatory notes. The Geneva Bible notes were notoriously anti-monarchy. They were very outspoken against the crown and highlighted the verses in Scripture that were against the crown. And so the crown did not, of course, approve of that. And so wanted to get rid of those nasty footnotes. And uh, so there was great contention over that. And so then the King James Bible came along. And, you know, we can debate the merits of it, but the truth is and the reality is that God's church is settled on the King James Bible. And it was and has been the the, uh, majority Bible for many years. It is just now, uh, after 400 plus years, just now, it is not, I I believe in the last couple of years, it is no longer the number one selling translation uh, of the English Bible. Uh, So, that being said, and I know that the more I say, the more it can raise questions with you. Now, believe me, my intention is to get to all of these things and answer questions and so on. Uh, But just for right now, let's just say this, that we would insist that any English translation of the Bible should be translating the Texas Recepus. That's number one. And number two, that if there is a translation of it, it would need to be widely accepted by God's churches, faithful New Testament churches, uh, before it would even be or even should be considered. So that being said, uh, there's no reason for us to step away from the King James at this point, no reason at all. Uh, I believe that, and again, what I've preached to you, First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 3.15, which refers to the church as a pillar and ground of the truth, And uh, drawing from that, God's plan for the preservation of his word, I believe, is through faithful, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, expository preaching, which the people are receiving as they go through the word, see what it says, comparing scripture with scripture, learning the Bible, passing it then to their children. But this is the means that God has used for preserving his word through the years. And the beauty of it is that we have a record going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Of, to the, the early church fathers. I was reading this today. In fact, it's in my notes to talk about this. That the early church fathers, in the, uh, the writings of the early church fathers... Uh, every single verse in the New Testament is spoken of or referenced by them. They've, they, so they have dealt with the Word of God. And you can go back and look at it and see what they said. Now that to me is staggering. You can go back hundreds of years to Matthew Henry, to John Gill, and you can see what God's people have believed about verses. there's There's a history to interpretation of Scripture and understanding of Scripture. And still to this day, some of the most valuable commentaries that I read are some of those ancient commentaries on Scripture. These are wonderful, glorious things but this is what God was t- doing. Matthew Henry is a pastor. John Gill was a pastor. These men were pastors in their pastoral ministry, preaching the word. There's a re- record of it. God's people receiving it, passing it to their children. This is God's plan for a preserved word of God. And so that's what we are championing, championing here in our church. So let's look at verse two and verse 13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now that fits with what I was just talking about, this thing of receiving the word, that this is God's people receive and recognize or recognize and receive the words of God. That has been the case since the beginning of the New Testament canon. Uh, God's people have done this uh, historically, and that's why, again, I believe that any translation, if you go to China or Cambodia, the true believers there, if, if you were to translate the Bible into Chinese, which there is a Chinese translation that uh, the believers use there, I believe that uh, Brother Neil is... Um, May start looking at some things on that to try to uh, work on that. That's what I've been told, but I don't know um, for sure. I guess the Vasquez are shaping their ideas. You've heard the same. All right, so I'm not way off base. That's good. Um, but uh, if they're going to do that, then you would look for churches to receive it and say, This is God's word. Praise the Lord. And preach it and proclaim it. And if not, if the churches are objecting to it, then you would go back and you would try to repair that so that the objections are taken care of. Not not like a little objection here or there, but that there would be widespread acceptance among the churches. So that's what we should look for. This is the pattern that Scripture teaches us as well, that God's people re- recognize and receive the words of God. So I'm going to uh, go back through some of what we've taught, and then I'm going to conclude this part of the teaching tonight, if I can keep myself on my notes, because so far I've gotten like two inches down on my first page of notes. We're not doing well. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help us. I pray that we would um, have confidence in your providential power, keep your word. And I pray that um, we would uphold the word of God and that we would not uh, be doubting or wavering at all. I pray that instead we would focus on thoroughly teaching and instructing regarding the words of God. Please help me as I uh, teach tonight that I would uh, be a careful and faithful teacher to your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Textual criticism tends to approach the manuscript tradition as neutral scientists. Okay, so they look at textual criticism as a neutral science. So it literally is, we have 5,800 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament uh, available to us. Well, they're not all Greek. Uh, 5,800 ancient manuscripts. Some of them are Syrian. Some of them are Latin. Actually, quite a few are Latin. Um, But we have all these ancient manuscripts that are an ancient record. And so they take all those out and they weigh them. And they, uh, not weigh like on a scale, but they weigh them as to value. And they categorize it as all. And let's just where it leads us. Um so according to the rules of science that's what you do you you don't you don't you lay aside your assumptions and you approach the evidence objectively no precommitments um no biases whatsoever but of course we know that this is impossible, ultimately impossible. Everyone has a hard commitment, everyone has a bias. Even the idea that the evidence will lead you to the truth is not a neutral idea. That's not a neutral idea. And the idea that examination of ancient texts, some text as old as 1800 years old, will answer your questions or tell you what to think about the text of scripture is absolutely ludicrous. I've I've been fond of pointing out to you that if we took that park across the street, Grandview Park, and if you took all the fossils that have been discovered in the world and you laid them out side by side and filled the entire park, I doubt the park would contain them all, but, but if you were to do that and set them all out there and we were to walk out there with pencil and paper and clipboard and measuring tapes and all of that to see what the fossils will tell us. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a biologist. But I'm going to tell you something. I'm not a paleontologist. But I'm going to tell you something. If we were all to walk out there to see what the fossils would tell us, I can tell you right now that the fossils would not tell us anything. They're fossils, <clears throat> they don't speak. They don't say a word. And the truth is that I as a creationist can walk out into a field of fossils, and I'm going to interpret it very differently than an evolutionist who does not believe that God, there is a creator God. He is going to see and assume and come to a very different set of conclusions than what I am. And the difference between us is going to be the assumptions that we start with. So, when it comes to textual criticism, it's the same thing. There's no one, nobody, that lays out all the 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament and approaches it without any assumption. That does not happen. It doesn't work that way. Textual criticism is naturalism applied to the text of scripture. Textual critics are committed to the evolution of the text of scripture. As a case in point, Bruce Mesker's book is called The Text of the New Testament, it's transmission, corruption, and restoration. And this is a common view among textual critics that the text of the New Testament was corrupted And that the work of textual criticism is to restore to its original quality, the original words of Scripture. So to discover or to uh, determine which words are original. Textual criticism believes that it is restoring the text of the New Testament and to some extent also the text of the Old Testament especially with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this is why, with each new edition of the critical text, the Nestle Nestle Allen text, hundreds of changes are made. It would seem that the goal, as I said, is not to arrive at a settled text, but only to constantly tweak and improve. And it's ironic that each new edition of the critical text comes closer and closer to the West Concord uh, edition of 1881. And this is because the text of Scripture is being treated like any other ancient text. And the same rules of textual criticism are applied to the New Testament manuscripts as are applied to Plato or Homer or Virgil or any of the other ancient writers. In other words, textual criticism is considered to be a work of scholarship and not a work of faith. I've given one example of this naturalism applied to the text, and that is in Daniel Wallace's theory of an emerging canon consciousness that emerged over 300 years after the closing of the canon. Of course, Daniel Wallace, uh, the foremost, considered by most, to be the foremost textual New Testament textual critic. And Daniel Wallace has um, suggested that there was an emerging canon consciousness that the earliest manuscripts show a carelessness in copying um, because and he he believes, it's conjecture, but he um, assumes that it's because they didn't know that they were handling scripture. They knew they were getting something from Paul. Paul's an apostle. This This must be an important word but they are not seeing it as scripture. And so his claim is that it was not until around the fourth century that this canon consciousness emerged, the end of the third, into the fourth century. Now, to be fair, Wallace doesn't make this a major argument. He doesn't really build anything in his case on this claim of his. But it illustrates, and this is why I bring it up. It illustrates the low view he takes of the early church's care of the text of Scripture. He is claiming carelessness in copying, that they're in a hurry, they're copying it all by hand, and so they're not being careful with the Word of God. And that, of course, that carelessness results in the corruption that uh, Bruce Metzger is talking about, the textual criticism, is the cure for. There would obviously be no need for restoration if there were not a corruption of the text, right? Now, you have to prove corruption in order to argue for restoration. So we've been busily refuting Wallace's claim over um, several weeks here, we started by showing the manuscript tradition from the second third and fourth centuries i pointed out to you of the 5800 manuscripts don't you are alike there are different variants of <laughs> every single manuscript every single one um, manuscripts understand uh, manuscript means that it's copied by hand manu hand script writing so it's handwritten these are handwritten manuscripts of the Bible. And that's why, the reason why there are these variants is because they're handwritten. You can copy anything you're, you know, if if three of us are hand copying it, we'll make three different mistakes <coughs> but it's almost guaranteed that we'll make mistakes. That That's just the way it goes. That's normal. Um, and to be expected with that. Those mistakes would be caught and um, fixed in future copies of the manuscripts. But according to Wallace, the earliest manuscripts show a carelessness in copying. That's, That's a different claim. He takes that to mean that they didn't know that they were handling Scripture. The carelessness shows up especially, according to Wallace, in the Pauline epistles and the general epistles as Wallace believes that the Gospels were canonized much earlier and so handled with more care. So we examined the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century manuscripts. We didn't examine them, like get them and and look at the words in them. Uh, But we just pointed out, we went through really what we have from the 2nd century, from the 3rd century, from the 4th century. And in the 2nd century of the... Uh, 20 or 30 manuscripts. Uh, there's one that's significant enough to warrant an examination. Um, the others are fragments. They're single fragments in most cases. Uh, sometimes just scraps, really, um, that are worn out. Um, they're, I mean, still readable, uh, but but not a lot on them. Uh, so you would need you would need. I I would estimate. I would assume that in order to prove to demonstrate carelessness, you would need three substantial manuscripts. There's one in the second century. So with one, it's really hard to say. You know, it just shows carelessness. If it's it's you just have very carelessness. No, I think that careless. I think that Wallace's claim is his explanation for the. Unbelievable amount of variance between Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, but we'll come back to that in a second. We have one manuscript from the second century that is about 80 pages or so. All the rest of the second, we have one, I'm sorry, one manuscript from the third century also that is large enough to examine all the rest of them, and maybe there are 40 manuscripts from the third century. And all the rest of the 2nd and 3rd century manuscripts are single fragments or single pages. Wallace argues that prior to the settling of the canon, that took place at the Council of Hippo in 393 and the Council of Carthage in 397. The copyists were careless. But after the canon was settled, then the copyists said, oh, this is the Bible, we better be careful with it. And then, his claim is that there began to creep into the text errors of piety, where the copyist is saying, oh, these words can't be right, we better fix them. These words don't match what was said over here, we better fix this. And so they were making well-intentioned, but errant corrections to the text of Scripture. Now, I'm going to say, first of all, that um, I I recognize that I am not qualified to uh, debate Daniel Wallace when it comes to textual scholarship. There's just, you know, he has years of experience and expertise that is beyond my ability. So I'm going to say that, first of all. The scholars have declared that nearly all the major textual variants appeared before 200 AD. Okay, so let me give you this quote. Eminent scholars such as E.C. Colwell, G.D. Kilpatrick, and Kurt and Barbara Allen maintain respectively that the overwhelming majority of readings, almost all variants, and practically all the substantive Variants in the text of the New Testament existed before the year 200. Okay, so this is what we're saying here: that the te- the the the, the, the variants, substantial variants, that creeped into the text, were early, not late. All right, it was right away; it was immediate with that. So. To prove his theory of carelessness, Wallace would need to produce, one would think, multiple manuscripts from the 2nd and 3rd centuries that demonstrate careless copying, and then multiple manuscripts from the 4th century that show errors of piety. But in fact, the two substantial Greek manuscripts that we have from the 4th century show not errors of piety, but errors of carelessness. These two manuscripts are Aleph B, Aleph and B. Sinaiticus is called Aleph, and Vaticanus is Codex B. And Wallace considers these the two most important manuscripts of the New Testament, with Vaticanus being the most important. Yet the two are significantly different from one another. In fact, some, I pointed out to you, some have estimated that 80% of the verses are uh, differ from each other, significantly. So these two, synaticus and Vaticanus, are downright shoddy for copying. They were not embraced by the churches. So here's the bottom line. And this is the this is the way I see it and understand. It. I think Wallace is attempting in a scholarly way to excuse the shoddiness of the Alexandrian text. Alright, I think that's a scholarly explanation for it. Ultimately, New Testament churches over the last five, six, seven hundred years have not, have rejected the Alexandrian text. In fact, the vast majority of the 5,800 manuscripts, especially the ancient Alexandrian texts, were discovered in the last 100 years or so. It goes back really prior to Westcott and Hort a little bit. I mean, Westcott and Hort had manuscripts to work with. But Westcott and Hort resurrected the Alexandrian text and said... That, hold on, wait, 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 we shouldn't be just embracing the TR, which they considered to be vile. We should be using the Alexandrian. That should be the standard for what we consider to be the Word of God. But, of course, the reason that Christians objected to the Alexandrian was because of the shoddiness of the manuscripts, as much as anything else. Other claims have been made, and other things that have been said, but when you have manuscripts that have so many, a high number of singular (coughs) readings, readings that are only found in those manuscripts and no others, and so much variance between the two, there's no reason why you should accept that and overthrow the text of Scripture that churches were using consistently for hundreds of years. That's what I'm arguing here. So the textual evidence does not demonstrate an emerging canon consciousness. It does show the corruption of the Alexandrian text. For whatever reason that might be, and I think probably the liberalism of Hellenistic Jews contributed to it, the prevalence in Alexandria of uh, heretical teachers, and probably some contribution because of the geographical distance from the main body of believing New Testament churches would all feed into that. But regardless... There's no reason for us to say the Alexandrian text is more reliable. We should should discard the text that churches used for hundreds of years in favor of this text that the churches did not use, clearly did not use. It was lost for hundreds of years. So we shouldn't say resurrect it and say now we need to correct. It's the same thing with the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, someone asked, you probably remember someone raised their hand and asked me, you don't believe in the Dead Sea Scrolls? I don't know what what would there not what would there be to not believe in? I went and visited the caves at Kurum Kumram, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. I saw the caves. I saw little scraps of uh, what they found in the caves. What I'm saying is though, when you find a bunch of earthen jars full of manuscripts and you say, you realize that these are the Bible, you don't then say, we better go back and reevaluate the Bible that we've been using to see if we have the right words. You don't do that. What you do with it is you say, what a glorious testimony to the authenticity of the Word of God that we found this ancient cache of manuscripts untouched, and they match, can you believe it, they match the Bible that we have. That's amazing to me. But that is not grounds to go back and re-evaluate the Hebrew Old Testament. That's not what you do with it, okay? What you do is you celebrate it, that it's further witness of the truth of God's Word. That's why you're not going to hear me rail against the Alexandrian text. What I'm going to say with the Alexandrian is the same thing. It was discovered in Egypt. It was discovered in the last 100 to 150 years. I think I think some of the older ones, the most ancient ones, were discovered in like 1932 or somewhere in there, 1926. 1932, Chester Beatty uh, who discovered some of these things exploring in Egypt and came across them or found them or found them in markets and, Places is like that, it's amazing, it's amazing. And despite the, the difficulty of the manuscripts, we can still say that these manuscripts give a wonderful testimony to the authenticity of the Word of God. That should increase our confidence in God's Word. So certainly the Alexandrian text should not be considered the standard of New Testament authenticity. So we took a long time on that, and then I reviewed it, and then I reviewed it again, and I've taken a long time reviewing it. But it's also a lot of information, and I want you to have somewhat of a grasp. It's one of those things, some of these technicalities, if you've only heard them, and then, you know, a month from now, it comes up in a conversation then becomes a danger to you because you remember it a certain way and then somebody corrects you on it that knows more and so on so I, I thought it was worth it to review it a few times we then took time to review what the Bible says actually about the emergence of the New Testament canon and this is, this is a wonderful thing the Bible is not silent when it comes to the canon of Scripture, and how we got the canon of Scripture. Alright, but canon, you know, a canon is a standard, okay? So, canon, the canonical books, are the 27 books of the New Testament. Understand that. And so, how did we get those 27 books? How did that work with the early New Testament church? The apostles clearly indicated when a word or an epistle or writing was to be treated as canonical. Paul in Galatians six eleven, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. The apostles made sure that they, in some way, marked what they were sending out, so that the believers would be able to see that it was authentic, that it was from him, his own hand. In First uh, Corinthians sixteen eleven. Paul writes at the end, the salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. Colossians 4.18, the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you, amen. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So Paul is very clear about this when he passes it to the churches. That's why Paul's epistles would end with a note about the official messenger who delivered the letter. Because that envoy was part of how Paul was communicating that this is scripture treated as such. So that's the first thing. Believers were told to use epistles in public readings and to send copies to other churches to read as well. Colossians four sixteen and when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Revelation one verse three, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So John is instructing them. You see that he's not leaving it to chance. He's not making it a But, you know, we know this is from an apostle, so it's important, but I don't know. I mean, we better just hurry up and scribble out what it says there and not be careful with it. There's no reason to say that. Revelation 1, verse 10 and 11. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches, which are in Asia. So the book of Revelation, when John wrote it, he gave clear instruction that this book was to be copied and carried to these seven churches. And of course, from there, it would be spread throughout the New Testament world. Guys, so our next points out that they were binding on all the churches And as the churches were receiving and reading those authoritative writings, they were thereby laying the foundation of a growing collection of received writings. So the canonization process began immediately. Immediately the apostles are marking these manuscripts or these epistles as scripture, sending them to the churches, instructing the churches to copy them and send them to the other churches. Guys, start next again. At first, no church possessed all the apostolic letters, but their collection grew as copies could be made and authenticated by apostolic signature or emissary. Undoubtedly, the first copies of Scripture emerged from this procedure of circulating epistles. As the churches grew, the demand for copies became greater so that more congregations could keep them from their regular readings For the regular readings and study along with the old testament scriptures so the canonization process can be summarized this way first the letters obviously intended for the churches in general then each church would be obliged to make copies of the letters so they would possess them for future reference and study public reading exposition and so on each church would seek to have its own collection of authoritative writings and in fact The Bible describes the process exactly this way. We see a record in Scripture of various apostolic writings that were canonized before the text of the New Testament was completed as evidenced by the copying and referencing that took place. For example, in 2 Peter 3, verses 14-16, Peter referred to the epistles of Paul. In Jude. Jude quotes as scripture, a passage from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 7 is quoted, not verbatim, but a passage from it is quoted as scripture in 2 Timothy 5, 18 by the Apostle Paul. So what I'm saying is that the Bible itself demonstrates that believers were recognizing the word of God and they were caring for it the way God intended that it should be done. This is providential preservation. All right, so I'm going to hustle through what I have for you tonight, okay? The de- development of the canon also refutes this idea of an emerging canon consciousness, okay? Okay. So the canon itself, how did it develop? Well, we, we see the beginnings described for us in Scripture. The apostles write, they mark it with a signature or an envoy who's able to confirm that that is the word of God, a direct messenger from the apostle. The churches are carefully copying, passing, distributing that word to other churches. Now, you know, keep in mind the church, the church is growing and there are churches, new churches being planted everywhere. Really, persecution is scattering the believers, and everywhere they go, they start up a church there. And then, of course, as a church, they want copies of the Word of God. And so they are not seeking those. But So, so many of the books are settled right away, but some of them are disputed and some even denied as being the canon of Scripture. And I'm going to point out a few of those to you. I think that, I mean, it would be seem obvious to me that not every church had every one of the 27 books of the New Testament, or at least that it took time for churches to get the full collection of books. And because the copies are handwritten, the early church is vulnerable to those who deny that some of the books of the Bible are Scripture. Early church sources acknowledge that some New Testament books were disputed uh, in the early church, and that there were those who outright rejected a small number of New Testament books. Probably the biggest challenge came from the heretic Marcion, who denied the authority of the Old Testament entirely, taught that the Gospels were to be rejected, that the only Authentic books for New Testament believers were the Pauline epistles, but his challenge was met and defeated by the early church. Uh, Geisler next point out that every book of the New Testament had been cited as authoritative by some church father. In fact, within about 200 years after the first century, nearly every verse of the New Testament was cited in one or more of the over 36,000 citations by the fathers 36,000 citations they were diligently teaching and proclaiming the word of God to the people not every book of the New Testament is quoted by every father but every book is quoted as canonical by some father a variety of canonical lists have been found from the 2nd and 3rd centuries I'm just going to run through those very quickly Included in this are some of the earliest translations of the New Testament, which included most of, if not all, of the 27 books of the New Testament. The Old Syriac uh, includes all of the New Testament except for 2 Peter, Second and Third John, Jude, and Revelation. The Old Latin is missing uh, the book of Hebrews, James, First and 2 Peter. Um, All of those translations date back prior to the fourth century, and in fact, the Old Latin was translated prior to 200. The first translation of Scripture and served as the Bible for the early Western Church, just as the Syriac version did for the East. A document that dates to nearly to about 170 A.D. that Murid Muratorium Canon includes an identical list of canonical New Testament books identical to the Old Latin. Codex Barakotia dates to 206 AD and includes 64 of the 66 books of the Bible. It excludes Esther from the Old Testament and Revelation from the New Testament. Eusebius of Caesarea in 340 or around 340 AD testified to the full acceptance of 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He rejected Revelation outright. He listed as disputed James, Jude, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. Athanasius, you've heard of him. Athanasius of Alexandria in 373 clearly lists all 27 books books of the New Testament as canonical. And within the next century, Jerome and Augustine would verify the same list. In 393, the Council of Hippo, and in 397, the Council of Carthage gave their witness to the exact same list, 27 books of the New Testament, which we have today. So again, we have a stellar record of these things. The canonization process was not the result of a slowly emerging canon consciousness churches received the New Testament canon the scripture, when, and, and this is what you need to understand books that were disputed were disputed because churches did not have access to them all right when churches received one of the books of the New Testament they recognized it as the word of God. Remember what Jesus said? My sheep hear my voice. And they know me. God's people hear the voice of God and the word of God. And they received it as the word of God. So the books that were disputed were disputed on the basis of distribution. That the books were not, not equally dispersed among the churches. And so some of, especially the general epistles, that were not accessible to as many people, and as a result of that, it raised doubt for people, and especially the farther removed you were from the early church, uh, the the original church of the New Testament. But they were not making lists either of the authorized canons. God's word is passed around from church to church. Churches are forming all over the world. It's evident from the book of Acts that there, in some cases the church was growing faster even than the apostles could keep up with. But Marcion's challenge forced the church to settle the question. So that's really what happened then. God's churches uh, gathered in these two councils, Hippo and Carthage. And gave their witness to the entire canon of scripture. Now, these councils, Hippo and Carthage, did not create the canon of Scripture. Alright, that's something that people will throw at, but that's not how it worked at all. They gave their authoritative witness. Churches are, remember, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the canon is not the product of scientific research and lab-tested conclusions. God gave the canon of Scripture, God's churches received the canon, and they gave their witness to the authority of this canon. Douglas Wilson refers to an argument Martin Luther made to demonstrate the way this Testimony, the testimony of the church's works. The testimony of John the Baptist did not confer on Jesus his authority as the Messiah. Right? John the Baptist was told in a vision before Jesus came to be baptized that the Messiah will be coming to you to be baptized. I will tell you, I will show you because the Spirit of God will descend like a dove on When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Right? He was not making Jesus the Lamb of God. He was recognizing Jesus as the Lamb of God. And that was confirmed by the Spirit descending like a dove. But that being said, that doesn't mean... That the testimony of John the Baptist was nothing doesn't mean that. All right. In fact, the testimony of John the Baptist was necessary. Even so, the testimony of the early church did not create the canon of Scripture, but that testimony is important. In fact, as Wilson describes it, the testimony of the church on this point is submissive to scripture, but authoritative to the saints. So, so let's say it this way. Some of the early church fathers can be excused for their doubts about certain books of the New Testament. We cannot be if someone were to stand up and say 2 Peter doesn't belong in the Bible we would um, try to talk them down off that ledge before declaring them a heretic alright that's, that's how that would go okay because the church has spoken authoritatively to this to us Chrysler, Nick summarized the process of collecting authentic, apostolic literature this way. It began within New Testament times. In the 2nd century, there was verification of this literature by quotation of the divine authority of each of the 27 books of the New Testament. In the 3rd century, doubts and debates over certain books culminated in the 4th century with the decisions of influential fathers and councils. Through the centuries since that time, the Christian church Has maintained the canonicity of these 27 books. There you go. So we have the whole of Scripture, all right? And um, now we want to, of course, get into the text itself, and all of that is relevant to the issue of the words, the words themselves.